get back now into our Second uh, Timothy 3.16 study. Again, doctrine, a belief or system of beliefs accepted as authoritative by the church. And we want to look tonight with 2 Timothy 3.16 and 2 Peter 1.19-21 uh, as being some of our key texts here. <clears throat> 2 Timothy 3.16 says, <clears throat> are you going to hit record, Nikki? <clears throat> oh, it has been. Okay. We'll edit that out. It says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So uh, we have this doctrine of inspiration spoken of in 2 Timothy 3.16. Inspiration is the pillar to bibliology. Not biology, Johnny. Bibliology. Studying the Bible. One's views of inspiration determines one's views of the scripture. A biblical definition of inspiration is there in 2 Timothy 3.16. Inspiration is the word theopneustos in the Greek, and it literally means God-breathed. Okay, Did everybody get the, the worksheet? Do you guys have a worksheet? Everyone have a worksheet? Everyone has a pen? Okay, great. Uh, literally means God-breathed. All right, so if you reread that, all scripture is breathed out by God. Okay, it's literally God breathed. Second Peter 1, 19 through 21 says, And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed, as a light that dawns in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The word moved in the Greek means carried along. And so as we uh, get into ministry, as we're witnessing to people, as we're sharing, uh, you have a lot of people that just believe, you know, that uh, anybody could just write down scripture. Anybody could uh, come up with an interpretation for that scripture that goes against what everybody else is saying. And that's cool. We live in a day where... Uh, where truth is relative to the situation, and we want to combat that uh, through right teaching, right doctrine. Uh, We see that the the prophecy in verse 21 came when holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit or carried along by the Holy Spirit. Uh, A proposed definition of inspiration is from Ryrie's Basic Theology, And it says, God superintended the human authors of the Bible so that they composed in their own styles and recorded without error his message to mankind in the words of their original writings. Okay, B.B. Warfield put it this way. If God wishes to give the people a series of letters like Paul's, he prepares Paul to write them. And the Paul he brought to the task was a Paul who could spontaneously write such letters, okay? So if you go back to that Ryrie's definition there, I like that word, Ryrie, (laughs) Ryrie Rogers, write that down, (laughs) write that down, Lindsay. Uh, God superintended the human authors of the Bible, so let's read it again, so that they composed in their own styles. You see that? With Paul, that's why Hebrews it's it's very Pauline. There's a lot of Paulishness in it, um, uh, although there's debate on that. And recorded without error, his message to mankind. Okay, uh, the Bible itself claims to be the inspired word of God. There are over three thousand eight hundred references in the Old Testament saying that the Bible is the word of God. You've got phrases like. God said, or thus saith the Lord, or the Lord said, or scriptures that directly teach that the scriptures were given by inspiration, like we just read. There are over 500 references in the New Testament claiming that the Bible is God's word. So total, that's 4,300 references in the scripture that says, this is the word of God. 
some of the phrases in the Old Testament from Exodus chapter 4, verses 10, uh, 10 and 12. Then Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent, neither before you nor since you've spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. And then if you jump to verse 12, now therefore go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. So as Moses went forth, God was with his mouth and taught him what to say. Second Samuel 23 Verses 1 and 2. Now these are the last words of David. Thus says David, the son of Jesse. Thus says the man God raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. So you're seeing this process of inspiration happen here. Uh, Isaiah 1, 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Then the Lord goes on uh, and speaks for the next 66 chapters. Jeremiah uh, chapter 1 verses 4 through 9 uh, are big there. And at the end of verse 9, he says, Behold, I've put my words in your mouth. So we've got words and tongue and mouth. Um, so this is inspiration. Men speaking as they are moved and enabled by God. Jeremiah 30, 1 and 2, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, thus speaks the Lord God of Israel saying, write in a book, write in a book for yourself, all the words that I have spoken to you. The Lord has spoken to Jeremiah all these words and Jeremiah was to write them down in a book, the book that we have in the Bible called Jeremiah. Ezekiel 2, 7 says, you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or whether they refuse, they are rebellious. Speak my words to them. And Ezekiel 3, 4, then he said to me, son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. And that's the same call that we have in New Testament Christianity to go and speak the words. And we've been talking in our elders meetings and in our discipleship groups. Hey, it doesn't matter the results. We're called to go and to preach the gospel and speak God's words to them. Whether or not they hear, they're rebellious people. Let the Holy Spirit do that work of it. Uh, in the New Testament, in Matthew 1.22, all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. So in inspiration, God speaks through the prophet. Uh, in Luke 1.70, Zechariah praises the Lord after his son John the Baptist is born. Uh, in Luke 1.70, he says, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. Jesus himself says what he has to say about inspiration in Matthew 22, 29. Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read, which was spoken by God saying, and so what we have there in verses uh, 29 through 31 is spoken through men and by God, okay? Um, in Mark 12, 36, David himself says, by the Holy Spirit, the Lord says, my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. In Acts 1, 16, men and brethren, this scripture, this is, uh, this is Peter speaking, uh, scripture said, Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David. So we see the Holy Spirit speaking by the mouth of David. David knew his words were inspired. Jesus knew David's word, words were inspired. And Peter knew David's words were inspired. In 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21, again, holy men of God, at the end of verse 21, spoke as they were moved or carried along by the Holy Spirit. Yes, the book was written by men, but very clearly the work was inspired and claims that holy men of God spoke as they were carried by the Holy Spirit. God was behind them to record and compose without error God's message to them. It's a reasonable, logical conclusion to come to that the scriptures are inspired. John Wesley said, you guys like how just my whole sermon's right there in front of you? <laughs> Should I do that on Sunday mornings? No, the Bible, the Bible, I love this. I love this Wesley quote. The Bible must have been written by God or good men or bad men or good angels or bad angels. All right. That kind of sums up who all could write it. Okay. 
But bad men and bad angels would not have written it because it condemns bad men and bad angels. Good men and good angels would not, would not dis, what did I, did I mistype that? Good men and good angels would not, I'm guessing that says be deceived by lying about its authority, by claiming that God wrote it. And so the Bible must have been written. Okay, got that. And so the Bible must have been written by God as it claims, who by the Holy Spirit inspired men to record his message to mankind. So biffed it there when he was talking about good men and good angels wouldn't have written it because they would have been lying about God's inspiration of it. Okay, totally got to edit that for the next time I teach it. <laughs> uh, moving along with the idea of inspiration here, there's some inadequate views of inspiration these uh, views are going to get crushed by the giant rock there of inspiration. Uh, the first view I want to tell you about is called the natural view. The natural view says that the Bible is only the product of human genius. It is not supernatural revelation. Okay? So it's all man. All right? All man, all brainiac. Okay? That's the natural view. Then we have the mystical view which says that the Bible is divine, but the process is one of supernatural intuition. Supernatural intuition. In which any spirit-filled person can write the words of God, which means that the Bible does not possess unique authority. Anybody could write it. What's the big deal? Okay. Then we have the conceptual view. Conceptual view states that the ideas or concepts of scripture are uniquely and divinely inspired, though not necessarily the details or the wording. This is also called inspired purpose. Then we have the partial view. Some parts of the scripture are totally inspired, but not all of them. Usually the inspired ones deal with matters of faith and practice. And one of the images that I had that I was going to put on here was a, like a reverend guy sitting at his desk, clipping out his Bible and throwing parts into the trash can that says stuff I don't like, you know? And so uh, that, that's what can come out of the partial view. Just whatever you like and stuff dealing with faith and practice, but all the other stuff, uh, there's picking and choosing. And at the end of tonight, hopefully we're going to see the problems with that. Um, Scriptures say in 2 Timothy 3.16 that scripture is profitable. Uh, Acts 24.14 says believe, that we're to believe everything that's been laid down by the prophets. In Luke 24.25, the disciples were foolish after the resurrection and not believing everything that the prophets had spoken, Jesus said. Uh, New Testament authors cite and believe every small detail in the Old Testament. And so as Wayne Grudem says, it's better to say that the whole purpose of scripture is to say everything it does say on whatever subject. Uh, the final false view or inadequate view is the dictation view. The dictation view would say that God so controlled the inspiration process that the writers were totally passive instruments like computers, just totally taken over and writing it. Okay, you get it. You've seen robots before. That's the dictation view. Uh, a question that we ask when we come to inspiration is, does inspiration apply to only the Old Testament or to also the New Testament? Now, in context, both 2 Timothy and 2 Peter have the Old Testament scriptures primarily in view, but the attitudes of Peter and Paul as they spoke of the natures of the scripture would have extended to cover the New Testament uh, that were in the process of inscripturation. Okay, put that new word in your book. Uh, not really, whatever. Um, Peter implies the authority of the New Testament writings when he speaks about Paul's letters. In 2 Peter 3.16, uh, he is talking about Paul's letters and he refers to it in the same category as the rest of the scriptures at the end of chapter 3, verse 16. And uh, Paul calls the writings of Deuteronomy 25.4 and the writings of Luke scripture when he quotes in 1 Timothy 5.18, the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, 
and the laborer is worthy of his wages. And in that text that Paul quotes, he's quoting Moses and Jesus in the same passage, or Luke quoting Jesus, referring to it's all scripture. So the Lucan writings are the same inspiration as the Mosaic writings. Okay? Um, does inspiration only apply to the originals? or also to the copies and translations, okay? So, yes, okay, I totally believe the word of God is inspired, but the actual papyrus that Moses wrote down on, you know, 5,000 years ago. Or is it, you know, in the NIV that we're reading today, or the New King James Version? Um, in the context of 2 Timothy 3, Paul seems to have in mind the manuscripts that Timothy possessed, which were likely copies of the Septuagint, copies of the Septuagint, or LXX, which is the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament. The problem, though, is if copies and translations are as inspired as the originals, if they differ from one another, as there's evidence, you can just open up your NIV and see it's different, isn't God the author of contradiction and inconsistency? Contradiction and inconsistency? A solution to that is looking at two things here. Two observations could be made. By scripture, Paul is referring to the original written message, not a particular document or translation. So this is one observation. In other words, he's using scripture in a more abstract or generalized sense and is not tied to any one manuscript. Or secondly, or and secondly, by inspiration, Paul refers to one of the continuing results of inspiration, which is divine authority. Divine authority resides in the copies and translations. So, to say that the scriptures are inspired is to say that they presently possess divine authority. Okay? As Wayne Grudem says, the authority of scripture means that all the words in scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of scripture is to disbelieve and disobey God. I'm not sure if you have that in your notes. Some of it you don't. Uh, and we're going to look more at that, uh, copies, translations, uh, we're going to look more at that next week or the week to come when we talk about the canon of scripture and how scriptures came to be compiled. Um, copies and translations are presently inspired to the extent to which they reflect the original autographs, okay? So we can say, the Bible I've got in my hand it's an inspired book because I can look clear back and praise God. We can go way back and look at originals. Dead Sea Scrolls were an incredible find that shows just how consistent the copyists have been over the thousands of years. And so we, would, we go back as far back as we can go and we can see uh, to what, ref, what extent they reflect the original autographs. Uh, confirmation of this is in 2 Timothy 3.15 where Paul says to Timothy, from childhood you've known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. It's the word scriptures is grammata or writings, and it means the manuscripts. So in the context of talking of inspiration, of all the scriptures being inspired, then he says, he's talking about, man, the, the, the scriptures you've had growing up, Tim, Timmy, and the manuscripts, okay? It's a clear reference to manuscripts that he has. He goes on to say, all scripture or graphe, now he changes the language, uh, always translated scripture here, is given by inspiration of God. He's going beyond the particular document and talking about the divine message in a more broad sense. Okay, I don't think you have this in your notes, but this is from the Westminster Confession. Let me read to you. 
We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scriptures and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies and the entire perfection thereof, are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. There's all sorts of external factors and arguments that would point to it being the word of God. Yet, it goes on to say, notwithstanding, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. And so we can do all this external stuff, which is good, but we got to remember it's the work of the Holy Spirit that, that moves us towards uh, believing. The words of the scripture are self-attesting. We cannot use anything to prove the scripture to be true or the word is made the subordinate. Human reason, logic, historical accuracy, scientific truth. We're almost back to your guys' notes. Um, one, uh, I think it's Grudem that says, we believe the scripture to be God's word because it claims to be that. And we believe it claims to be claims its claims because scripture is God's word. And we believe that it is God's word because it claims to be that and so forth, which is circular argument. And he says, sure, this is a circular argument, but everyone uses circular arguments to defend their case. So. As we look at inspiration of the scriptures, we also move a bit deeper and consider the inerrancy of the scriptures, which is also a total error <laughs> on the screen. It's kind of pretty, isn't it? Okay. The inerrancy of the scriptures. Inerrancy speaks of the scriptures being without error. Okay. Without error. E.J. Young says, by this word, inerrant, we mean that the scripture possesses the quality of freedom from error. They are exempt from the liability of mistake, incapable of error. In all their teachings, they are in perfect accord with the truth. In the past, it was just enough to say the Bible was inspired by God. Today, it's become necessary to define the evangelical position more specifically. Inerrant, another word that we would use would be infallible, which is incapable, not even capable of failure or error. Charles Ryrie says, to state the correct view, it's necessary to include the words verbal, plenary or full, infallible, inerrant, unlimited inspiration. Romans 3, 4 says that God is true. 2 Timothy 3, 16, the words are breathed out by God. Therefore, the scriptures must be what? True, inerrant, without error and incapable of error. Grudem says the inerrancy of scriptures means the scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. The Bible always tells the truth. Inerrancy is seen in the continuity of scriptures. Take a break from your notes because you don't have this in there. Adapted from Josh McDowell's evidence that demands a verdict, the Bible is the only book that was written over a 1,500-year span. It's the only book that was written by more than 40 authors from every walk of life, including kings, military leaders, peasants, philosophers, fishermen, tax collectors, poets, musicians, statesmen, scholars, and shepherds. Moses was a political leader and a judge trained in the universities of Egypt. David was a king, a poet, musician, shepherd, and warrior. Amos was a herdsman. Joshua, a military general. Nehemiah, a cupbearer to a pagan king. Daniel, a prime minister. Solomon, a king and a philosopher. Luke, a physician. Peter, a fisherman. 
Matthew, a tax collector, Paul, a rabbi and a tent maker. Mark was Peter's secretary. It was written in different places. It was written by Moses in the wilderness, Jeremiah in the dungeon, Daniel on a hillside and in the palace, Paul inside prison walls, Luke while traveling, John while exiled on the island of Patmos. It was written in different times. David in times of uh, war, in times of sacrifice, Solomon in times of peace, in times of prosperity. It was written in different moods. Some were written from the heights of joy, others from the depths of sorrow and despair, some during times of certainty and conviction, others during times of confusion and doubt. It was written from three continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe. It was written in three different languages, Hebrew, which was a pictorial language in which the past isn't merely described, but it's verbally painted, not just a landscape. Is, uh, is presented, but a moving panorama in this language. The course of events is reenacted in the mind's sight. The frequent use of the word behold, it's a Hebraism carried over in the New Testament. Such common Hebraic expressions as he arose and went, he opened his lips and spoke, he lifted his eyes and saw, and he lifted up his voice and wept, illustrate the pictorial strength of the Hebrew language. Aramaic is the common language of the Near East until the time of Alexander the Great. Daniel 2 through 7, most of Ezra 4 through 7 are in Aramaic. And some statements in the New Testament, like Jesus' cry from the cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Josh McDowell says, although Aramaic is less euphonious and poetic than Hebrew, it is probably superior as a vehicle of exact expression. You see God's sovereignty and his inspiration that when he would have it written in, uh, in Aramaic, there was a purpose for that in that exact expression. Samuel Taylor said, I have found in the Bible words for my inmost thoughts, songs for my joy, utterance for my hidden griefs, and pleadings for my shame and feebleness. Samuel Taylor was a Coleridge English poet and literary critic. The Greek language comprised almost all of the New Testament. The international language, it was that, that was the international language spoken during the time of Christ. It was written in a wide variety of literary styles, including poetry, historical narrative, song, romance, didactic treatise, personal correspondence, memoirs, satire, biography, autobiography, law, prophecy, parable, allegory. The Bible addresses hundreds of controversial subjects, subjects that create opposing opinions whenever they're mentioned or discussed. Hundreds of hot topics are discussed, marriage, divorce, remarriage, homosexuality, adultery, obedience to authority, truth-telling, lying, character development, parenting, nurture, nature, and revelation of God. But from Genesis to Revelation, these writers address all of these things with a unanimous degree of harmony. Anybody else, it would have caused a giant war, a, di- a giant feud. Despite its diversity, there's one single unfolding story in the scripture, God's redemption of human beings. The leading character through all these books is the one true living God made known through Jesus Christ. The Old Testament uh, shows us that the law provides the foundation for Christ. The historical books show the preparation for Christ. The poetic books aspire to Christ. The prophecies expect Christ. In the New Testament, the gospels show the manifestation of Christ. Acts shows the preaching of Christ. The epistles show the uh, explanation of Christ or the interpretation of Christ. And the book of Revelation shows the completion of all things in Christ as Christ is expected. So from Genesis to Revelation, from cover to cover, the Bible is Jesus-centered, Christ-centered. Knowing that all those different authors wrote them from all these different time periods, from all these different places, from all these different backgrounds, and all these different languages, and all these different continents, it's all about Jesus. Although the Bible has many books by many authors, it shows in its continuity that it's also one book. Josh McDowell said this, 
contrast the books of the Bible with the compilations of Western classics called the great books of the Western world. The great books contain selection from more than 450 works by close to 100 authors spanning a period of about 25 centuries. Homer, Plato, Aristotle, Plotinus, Augustine, Aquinas, Dante, Hobbes, Spinoza, Calvin, Rousseau, Shakespeare, Hume, Kahn, uh, Kane, Darwin, Tolstoy, Whitehead, and Joyce, to name but a handful. While these individuals are all part of the Western tradition of ideas, they often display an incredible diversity of views on just about every subject. And while their views share some commonalities, they also display numerous conflicting and contradictory positions and perspectives. In fact, they frequently go out of their way to to critique and refute key ideas proposed by the predecessor. Uh, Sorry, that's all I got. (laughs) Not sure where the other half of that slide went. Uh, A representative of these great books of the Western world came to my house one day attempting to recruit salesmen for the series. He spread out a chart describing the series and spent five minutes talking to my wife and me about it. We then spent an hour and a half talking to him about the Bible, which we presented as the greatest book of all time. I challenged the representative to take just 10 of the authors from the great book series, all from one walk of life, one generation, one place, one time, one mood, one continent, one language, and all addressing one controversial subject. And then I asked him, would the authors agree with one another? He paused and then said, no. What would you have then? I asked. Immediately, he answered and said, a conglomeration. Two days later, he committed his life to Christ. So, the inerrancy of the scriptures is shown in all of that continuity of the scriptures. I know what you're thinking. Inerrancy. Wow. Tell me more. Right, Will? All right. Inerrancy. Without error. All right, or infallible, incapable of error. Few things about this. Inerrancy does not demand stiffness of style and word for word quotations from the Old Testament. Inerrancy does not demand word for word reporting of events. In ancient times, it wasn't the practice to give word-for-word quotations every time something was written out. Scripture scrolls were huge and not readily available at the time. Hence, freedom in the Old Testament quotes. Loose or free quotations were acceptable. Written in Greek at New Testament times, Uh, They didn't have quotation marks or equivalent types of punctuation. The writer did not ordinarily imply that he was using the exact words of the speaker, nor did the hearers expect verbatim quotations in such reporting. Inerrancy means simply that the Bible tells the truth. Charles Ryrie says, that's not it. Charles Ryrie says, truth can and does include approximations, free quotations, language of appearances, and different accounts of the same, even, uh, same event, as long as those do not contradict. The Bible can be inerrant and still speak in the ordinary language of everyday speech. The Bible uses ordinary language to describe natural phenomena or to give approximations or round numbers when those are appropriate in the context. The observer of the sun rises, uh, the same observer observes the sun rising and the rain falling. Let's look at numbers, for instance. Just perhaps you'll read numbers and one, you know, uh, one number might look different than another number as you read different versions. A reporter can say that 8,000 men were killed without implying that he has counted everyone and that there were not 7,999 or 8,001 dead soldiers. If roughly 8,000 died, it would of course be false to say that 16,000 died. But it would not be false in most contexts for a reporter to say that 8,000 men died when in fact 7,823 or 8,101 died. 
The limits of truthfulness would depend on the degree of precision implied by the speaker and expected by his original hearers. That's Wayne Grudem's uh, Systematic Theology book. So, inerrancy speaks of truthfulness, not to the degree of precision with which events were reported. Okay, uh, Here we have uh, the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy, which took place in Chicago, October 1978. So we're at the reunion right now for this in October. And, uh, and I actually have the whole document if you want to read the whole thing. But it says this, being holy and verbally God-given, Scripture is without error or fault in all its teachings, no less in what it states about God's acts in creation, about the events of world history, and about its own literary origins under God, than in its witness to God's saving grace in individual lives. Inerrancy extends to the original manuscripts. Uh, the Moody Handbook of Theology says, Inerrancy means that when all the facts are known, the scriptures in their original autographs and properly interpreted will be shown to be wholly true in everything they teach. Whether that teaching has to do with doctrine, history, science, geography, geology, or other disciplines or knowledge. When science may seem to point to something else, we still believe the scriptures, knowing that when all is said and done, it will be found true. If you were here for the Hebrews 11 teaching a few weeks ago, Hebrews 11, I think it's verse 6. Uh, no, it's not 6. It's 4, I think it is. By faith we believe that the worlds were formed, all right, uh, that they were made, that the things that we see were not made by things that we see, something, I'm totally butchering that. But uh, as you were here in, in Hebrews 11, I quoted A.W. Pink's Gleaning in Genesis, and he wrote this, the faith of the Christian rests not in the wisdom of man, nor does it stand in any need of betrussing from scientific salvos. The faith of the Christian rests upon the impregnable rock of the holy scriptures, and we need nothing more. Too often, Christian apologists desert their proper ground. For instance, one of the ancient tablets of Assyria is deciphered, and then it is triumphantly announced that some estimates found the historical portions of the Old Testament have been confirmed. But that is only a turning of things upside down again. The word of God needs no confirming. If the writing upon an Assyrian tablet agrees with what was recorded in Scripture, that confirms the historical accuracy of the Assyrian tablet. If it disagrees that it is proof positive, or excuse me, that is proof positive that the Assyrian writer was at fault. In like manner, if the teachings of science square with Scripture, that goes to show the former are correct. But if they conflict, that proves the postulates of science are false. The, the man of the world and the pseudoscientist may sneer at our logic, but that only demonstrates the truth of God's word, which declares that the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to them. Neither can they know them, because they are spiritually discerned. You might ask, well then, won't some new fact that turns up contradict the Bible? We can say with confidence that this will never happen and prove the Bible to be false. It's impossible. If this fact is discovered, it's the fact that is false, if we've understood the scripture rightly, that is. God, the author of the scripture, knows all the true facts. We should never fear, but always welcome any new facts. No true fact will ever contradict the words of God who knows all facts and never lies. The very nature of God is at stake here. And I believe that if I diverted from your notes, we're back. The very nature of God is at stake here. To assume that there are errors in his word is to assume that God cannot operate without error. Inerrancy allows for variety in style. Remember it. 
The Gospels of John is of the style of an unlearned fisherman, while Luke sounds like a physician, because a physician wrote it. Paul's epistles have all the logic of a philosopher. Inerrancy allows for a variety of details explaining the same event. We see this in the the Gospels that are very similar. And so uh, you might read that there were two guys there when Jesus healed this guy. And there were this many of this, and there were that many of that, and Jesus over here, and all that different stuff. It's important to remember that Jesus spoke in Aramaic, and the writers of Scripture wrote their accounts in Greek, meaning they had to translate the original words into Greek. One writer would use slightly different words to describe the same incident, yet both would have the same meaning with different words. There's other reasons for this variety of detail. One writer may have viewed the event from one standpoint, while the other viewed it from a different standpoint. This would make the details differ, yet both would be accurate. The reason for the picture up there, it's like two different people viewing a parade from two different standpoints. Each have a different take on the parade. They'll have seen different people, different objects, but this doesn't mean that either of their accounts is false. Inerrancy allows for departure from standard forms of grammar. Let's eat grandpa is different than let's eat grandpa. (laughs) Correct punctuation can save a person's life. All right. That's... There's a little brain break for you there, I guess. Uh, Inerrancy allows for departure from standard forms of grammar. English grammar is not the same as Greek, Hebrew, or Aramaic grammar. It's consistent with inerrancy to have unusual or uncommon grammatical constructions in the Bible. A statement can be ungrammatical, if that's grammatically the right way to say it, and yet be entirely true. An uneducated backwoodsman in some rural area may be the most trusted man in the county, even though his grammar is poor, because he has earned the reputation for never telling a lie. The issue is truthfulness in speech. Inerrancy allows for problem passages. sec. Inerrancy allows for problem passages. It's impossible, impossible to provide the solutions to all the problems. In some cases, the solution awaits an archaeologist's find or a linguist's research, or in some cases, we may never find out. But the answer is to never suggest that there are errors or contradictions in Scripture. If the scriptures are God-breathed, they are entirely without error. There are some clear errors in the Bible, people will tell you. No, there aren't. All can be resolved by a deep look at the text and the original language. Inerrancy demands that the account does not teach error or contradiction. The accounts may vary, but it still reflects things as they are. Some problems with rejecting inerrancy. First of all, errantists believe that errors can still teach truth. And uh, errantists believe that errors can still teach truth. Right, Aaron? Okay. If the Bible cannot be trusted in manners of chronology, history, and geography, it cannot be trusted in the message of salvation. Errancy attacks the character of God. If the scriptures contain errors, then God erred. Errantists disagree in all of the listing errors. They each have their own list of errors that differ from another. So who decides what is error and what isn't? If we deny inerrancy, a serious moral problem confronts us. May we imitate God and intentionally lie in the small matters also? If inerrancy is denied, we begin to wonder if we can really trust God in anything he says. A decline in trust and obedience will follow 
those who hold to errant scriptures. If we deny inerrancy, we essentially make our own human minds a higher standard of truth than God's word itself. This is at the root of all intellectual sin. Inerrancy is an important doctrine. It means the Bible speaks accurately in all of its statements, whether it's about theology, the creation account, history, geography, or geology. So, how accurate are the copies? I love this. Writing repetitive data by hand is wasteful. Okay. How accurate are the copies? I love this, this man. His name is Robert Dick Wilson. Wilson taught at Princeton as the head of Semitic languages. He could read and write 45 ancient Semitic languages. At age 25, he could read the New Testament in nine languages and had the New Testament memorized in Hebrew. Wilson could quote Matthew 1 through Revelation every syllable without missing a beat and also had many Old Testament books memorized as well. And here's what he had to say. For 45 years continuously, I've devoted myself to one great study of the Old Testament. In all of its languages, in all of its archaeology, in all of its translations, the critics of the Bible who go to it in order to find fault claim themselves all knowledge, all virtue, all love of the truth. One of their favorite phrases is, all scholars agree. Well, when a man says that, I wish to know who the scholars are and what they agree on. Where do they get their evidence? I defy any man to make an attack on the Old Testament on the grounds of evidence that I cannot investigate. After I learned, uh, after I learned the necessary languages, I set about the investigation of every single constant, consonant in the Hebrew Old Testament. Anybody here ever done that? <laughs> Sounds like a good Saturday. There are about 1,250,000 of them. It took me many years to achieve my task. I had to observe variations in the text, in the manuscripts, notes of the Masorites, various versions, parallel passages, and conjectural emendations of critics. Then I had to classify the result of every character, every consonant, to reduce the Old Testament criticism to an absolutely objective science, something which is based on evidence and not opinion. The result of those 45 years of study which I have given to the text has been this. I can affirm that there is not a page of the Old Testament concerning which you need have any doubt. Praise God, huh? He goes on to say, I've come to the conviction that no man knows enough to attack the veracity of the Old Testament. Every time when anyone has been able to get together enough documentary proofs to undertake an investigation, the biblical facts in the original text have victoriously met the test. Oswald T. Alice, describing Robert Dick Wilson's approach to the study of the Bible, says, Build solidly. Prepare thoroughly. Never be satisfied with superficial answers. God's word can stand the most thorough investigation. Do not shirk the difficult problems, but seek to bring the facts to light. For God's word and God's world will never contradict one another. He goes on to explain there are 29 ancient kings whose names are mentioned not only in the Bible, but also on monuments that, that, that we've uncovered in uh, our own time. Times like uh, Things like Pontius Pilate's seat place, which was found uh, in the theater in Caesarea. There are 195 consonants in these names, but there are only two consonants that have ever come into question. It turns out that they are all the exact way they appear on the monuments, which have been unearthed. Some of these are 4,000 years old, but appear exactly as they do in the manuscripts. You compare that to the greatest scholar of the day, the librarian at the biggest library of his day in Alexandria, Egypt, 200 BC. He compiled a catalog of all the kings of Egypt. There were 38 in all of the entire numbers. Only three or four are recognizable. He also made a compilation of the kings of Assyria. In this case, only one is recognizable, and that one's not even spelled correctly. Ptolemy drew up a registry of 18 kings of Babylon. Not one of them is properly spelt. You cannot make uh, them out at all. You wouldn't even know who they were if you didn't know some of the outside sources. So if anyone questions the Bible, have him check out the 29 kings, their countries, and the chronicolo chronological... <laughs> 
order, and they're all given perfectly in Scripture. What does that tell us? What is this leather-bound book that we hold in our hand? Nowadays, it's digital. Going to have to update that. (laughs) It's the very Word of God. And Paul's conclusion to Timothy in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4 is to preach this Word. To preach the Word. Charles Spurgeon says, I fear you have enough dust on your Bible to write the letters H-E-L-L with your finger. A.W. Tozer says, nothing less than a whole Bible will make a whole Christian. Charles Hodge said, it is most unreasonable to expect to be conformed to the image of God unless the truth concerning God be made to operate often and continuously upon the mind. How can a heart that is filled with the thoughts and cares of the world, and especially one which often is moved to evil by the thoughts or sights of sin, expect that the affections which answer to the holiness, goodness, or greatness of God should gather strength within it? How can the love of Christ increase in the bosoms of those who can hardly ever think of him or his work? This cannot be without a change in the very nature of things. And therefore, we cannot make progress in holiness unless we devote much time to the reading, hearing, and meditating upon the word of God, which is the truth whereby we are sanctified. The more this truth is brought before the mind, the more we commune with it, entering into its import, applying it to our own case, appropriating its principles, appreciating its motives, rejoicing in its promises, trembling at its threatenings, rising by its influence from which is seen and temporal to it is unseen and eternal. The more may we expect, uh, excuse me, the more may we expect to be transformed by the renewing of our mind so as to approve and love whatever is holy, just, and good. Men distinguished for their piety have ever been men of meditation as well as men of prayer. Men accustomed to withdraw the mind from the influence of the world with its thousand joys and sorrow and to bring it under the influence of the doctrines, precepts, and promises of the word of God. So that's inspiration, authority, and inerrancy of the scripture. That's a lot, I know. Uh, But you've got the notes. You can reread it. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.